This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. I'm really going to be talking about Joseph. I'm going to be talking about you and I'm going to be talking about me. So if you've got your Bibles with you, don't bother turning to them because I'm reading from the Jerusalem Bible. And uh, it's completely different to the version you've got. I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 to 11, and then Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. So here we go. This is the story of Joseph. Joseph was 17 years old. As he was still young, he was shepherding the flock with his brothers, with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Joseph informed their father of the evil spoken about them. Israel loved Joseph more than all the other sons, for he was the son of his old age, and he had a coat of long sleeves made for him. But his brothers, seeing how his father loved him more than all the other sons, came to hate him so much that they could not say a civil word to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he repeated it to his brothers. Listen, he said, to this dream I've had. We were binding sheaves in the countryside, and my sheaf, it seemed, rose up and stood upright. Then I saw your sheaves gather around and bow to my sheaf. So you want to be a king over us, his brothers retorted, or to lord it over us. And they hated him still more on account of his dreams and of what he'd said. And he had another dream, which he told to his brothers. Look, I've had another dream, he said. I thought I saw the sun, the moon, and eleven stars bowing down to me. He told his father and brothers, and his father scolded him. A fine dream to have, he said to him. Are all of us then, myself and your mother and your brothers, to come and bow to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept these things in mind. This is Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman adorned with the sun, standing on the moon, and with the twelve stars on her head for a crown. She was pregnant and in labor, crying aloud in the pangs of childbirth. Do you know, the story of Joseph is without question a favorite of both churches and theater companies, oddly enough, but I just wonder how many people really, really get the meaning. Um, When you look at Bible commentaries, they refer to the Joseph story in Genesis as a novella, because it stands in sharp contrast to the rest of Genesis. Genesis is a book of origins, it's a book of genealogies. But the Joseph story is almost like a play at the end of it. It's not to say it didn't happen, it did happen. But it contains a very special message, and it's a very special message for us. And it's something that we need to take on board, because what the message is really about is the favor of God. And that's the name of this word this morning. Do you know, revealing... His dreams to his brothers is often seen as either an act of pride or an act of foolishness. And we've known from every piece of social research, going back to 1926, that if you tell somebody your goal or ambitions, you're less likely to achieve them. And the reason for that is a little thing called substitution. If I tell you this morning, I'm going to go on a diet and I'm going to lose two stone, you're going to say, great, Ian, well done. Wish you the best. And so you give me a reward for an intention. And that makes it actually harder to achieve my ambition because I know I've got the reward already for doing nothing. And this year, when it comes to an end, people will start making New Year resolutions and they'll start putting them on Facebook and they'll be saying about the things they intend to do and the weight they're going to lose and all the rest of it. Don't. You make it less likely to achieve those aims and ambitions if you actually publish them and make it known to other people. It's interesting. Mary, the mother of Jesus... She stored in her heart the things that she'd heard about Christ. She didn't share them. And even here in the words we've read this morning, Joseph's father bears in mind the things that Joseph has said, okay? 
This is the key to actually achieving things. And how often do we in churches, how often do we, in particular in Pentecostal churches, praise people for aspiring rather than for achieving? Oh, I, I want to get a job. I want to get off drugs. You know, I, I want to read the Bible every day. I want to come to church every week. And we say, yeah, great, wonderful. And as a result, you know what? We make it harder for them to achieve that than if they just said, guess what? I've reached that ambition and I've achieved that goal already. So is Joseph an idiot for telling his brothers these dreams? Well, he is 17, and all 17-year-olds are idiots. <laughs> I should know. I was a, it's true. It's the word of God. Um, I remember being 17, and I was a complete idiot. But no, as we learn later on, this man has wisdom, and he is discerning. So he's not an idiot. So is it pride? It would be easy to think it was. But in actual fact, in these days, if you had a dream, it was just a dream. But when you told people a dream, it became a prophecy. He's prophesying over his family. His gift is to discern dreams, okay? He knows what these dreams mean, and he knows they're not the same. The first dream is to do with the coming of a famine that will kill his family. And the second dream is to do with how God will take those 12 brothers and make 12 tribes and create Israel. And from Israel will come the Christ. And that's why in the book of Revelations, you next see that same image of the 12 stars and the woman standing in the sun. He knows what God's plans and intentions are. And he sees his little place, a significant place in that plan and that role. And he is prepared to share the dream with his brothers because he wishes to bless them with it. But he knows there'll be consequences. He's not a fool and he's not proud. Actually, he's a very brave young man. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at his life and we're going to look at the ups and downs in his life and I'm going to try and relate those to maybe your experiences and my experiences to see if we can learn anything from this. And it begins with Revelation. He learns who he is in God. Do you know who you are in God? This is where pride can come in. Because sometimes, do you know what? Do you want to make a name for yourself? Do you want to see your name up in lights? Do you want to have people look up to you? If so, I can tell you this now, you'll make God an enemy. What does it say in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4? Let us make a name for ourselves and build a tower reaching up to heaven, the words of the builders of the Tower of Babel. And I cannot think of the Tower of Babel without also thinking of Trump Tower. <laughs> what happened last week? Can anybody explain it to me? How did a mentally ill, narcissistic lunatic become the most powerful man on earth who now has his fingers on the nuclear trigger and can in 30 minutes wipe out the human race? How did that happen? I was reminded after the election of the words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1-5. to Be aware... In the last days, there will be terrible times. People will love only themselves and money. They will be proud and boast about themselves. They will abuse others with insults. They will be ungrateful and against all that is pleasing to God. They will have no love for others and will refuse to forgive anyone. They will talk about others to hurt them, will have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. People will turn against their friends. They will do foolish things without thinking and will be so proud of themselves. Instead of loving God, they will love pleasure. They'll go on pretending to be devoted to God, but they will refuse to let that devotion change the way they live. Stay away from these people. 60% of all American Protestants voted for Trump. 75% of all American Jews didn't. I suspect the Jews know a little bit more about what might happen when you elect a superman to power. 
But you know what? I'm glad. I am glad. Bring it on. We are in the last days. What does it say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 to 12? For this reason, God will send them a strong delusion for them to believe a lie, so that they all might be damned who would not accept the truth, but prefer to live a lie. Amen. Bring it on. Let's have lunatics in charge of the nuclear warheads. But of course, Trump is mentioned in the Bible. You do know that, don't you? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of eye at the last trump. So, so, he might not be the last one. He might be the first one. But we know what's coming, brothers and sisters. Chinese have a curse. May you live in interesting times. We live in interesting times. But I can't leave this moment without also slagging off the European Union because the European Union's flag of 12 stars, where did they get that from? Oh, why? It's chapter 12, verse 1 of the book of Revelations. That's the image of Israel. When they decided to use that image as the flag of Europe, what they were saying was this, the European Union has replaced the kingdom of God. And when the European Union decided to build a new building in Strasbourg, what did they base it on? Bauhaus? La Corbusier? A townhouse in Town Hill? No. What they decided to do? Build it on the Tower of Babel. That's fun, isn't it? Let's replicate the Tower of Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves. Goodness me. Don't go down that route. We're not here to exalt our name, but the name of Jesus Christ, at whose mention every knee will bow. Do not use the body of Christ as a ladder to exalt yourself over the head who is Jesus. And Pentecostalism is rife with people filled with pride and ambition and arrogance and a love of status. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And Joseph knows he has to submit to the will of God by serving. He serves his brothers by telling them the truth. He serves as a slave, as a prisoner. He serves Pharaoh. And by serving people, he serves God. He continues to serve faithfully when misunderstood, when rejected, when falsely accused, even when imprisoned. Why? Because servants serve. And he knows who he is in God. He's a servant. And you can look at the story of Joseph, and I've heard it said many times, going back many years, that he was born to rule. He was born to serve. It's just that he ended up ruling in order to serve his brothers and make the will of God come true. Unfortunately, after revelation comes rejection by his brothers. He's already um, his father's favorite. And before the dreams, so guess what? They already hate him. They know that. Um, Why do they hate him? Because he's got a special coat. Coat of many colors, it says in the King James Version. Coat with tassels, it says, I think, in the NIV. Um, Nobody really knows what that Hebrew word means. But it pops up again in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 18 to 19, where it's described as a royal robe. So maybe his father sees that Joseph is going to rule, and therefore he gives him this coat. But it just causes jealousy among his brothers. And then when the dreams come, guess what? They show that the favor of God is also upon him. And so that becomes their focus of hatred. You see, God's gift to Joseph is to interpret dreams. Do you have gifts? Do you know what they are? Have you used those gifts? If so, how has the church treated you? First of all, the church cannot show either encouragement or discouragement unless you use your gift. Joseph uses his gift. Hey, brothers, I've got a dream. And he knows what's going to come as a result of that. They are the ones who are proud. They are the ones who are jealous. They are the ones who are filled with hate and they're filled with fear. Because they know that their father 
usurped his elder brother and took the blessing. And they're scared that Joseph is going to do the same. And they don't want to be left out and left at the bottom of the pile. And yet he, in response to all of this, do you know what? He is humble and he is fearless and he's only 17 years of age. He is really an extraordinary young man. But there really is a biblical principle here. God always provides a solution before the problem arises, okay? Joseph is the solution to the coming problem, which is the famine. How many churches out there have declined and failed and fallen? Why? Because salvation dried up. There was a a famine of salvation. And at that time, they might have prayed and cried out to God, why, why, why have you allowed this to happen? Why can't you change things around? And God could rightly say to them, I gave you a solution. I gave you a Joseph. Don't you remember? Don't you remember those young men in the church who said, you know what, we need to change? Things need to be done differently. We need to alter the way we organize ourselves. And what did you do with them? Oh, we put them in a well. Oh, well, go and have a look, see, they're still there. Oh, no, they've gone. Oh, they've left. They've disappeared. Do you know what? When churches declined, there was a solution to that problem before it arose, okay? But whether you grasp that solution or not ultimately depends on whether or not you've got the right attitude towards the gifts in people that are in your church. And it does tend to be a generational thing. It's the older ones that reject the younger ones. It also applies in your own individual life. You know, think of Noah. Noah gets revelation from God. God tells him there's a flood coming, build a boat. What does Noah do? He builds a boat. If Noah had waited until the rain started to fall, guess what? He would have drowned. And you see this with some Christians, okay? Some Christians get revelation from God about some issue, some problem that's coming. And you know what? They put into place a solution, and when the problem comes, they're sorted. Other Christians, you know what? They do hear from God, but guess what? They haven't got the faith to enact the solution. So what do they do? They wait until it starts raining. And then what happens? They drown. Other Christians, do you know what? They don't hear from God. So when it starts to rain, they think, ooh, this will be good for the garden. Then they drown. Other Christians, they hear from God. But you know what? They think God presents the wrong solution. So when it starts to rain, what do they do? Fix new tiles on the roof. Then they drown, okay? The solution is already there before the problem arises. This is actually the solution. You don't need magical revelation, okay, from the heavens. You don't need angels turning up. The problems with your finances, with your family, with your health, they're all here. The solutions are here before they arise. If you implement them. And if you don't, guess what? You're going to be left struggling with the rising water levels or the famine. And you'll be wondering why God has allowed it to happen. He sent you a Joseph. He sent you a solution. Did you listen to the Joseph? Did you enact the solution? If you didn't, well, you suffer, don't you? Anyway, after rejection comes acceptance into Potiphar's house. There's nothing more blessed than finding a place where you can be accepted for being yourself. How many Christians are rootless, spiritually homeless, or find themselves turned into bricks by some ministerial Tower of Babel when they've been cut as individual stones for the temple? Genesis 39 verse 2 says it so clearly. But Yahweh was with Joseph, and everything prospered with him while in the house of his Egyptian master, who could see that Yahweh was with him because Yahweh made everything succeed that Joseph did. Isn't it interesting? It's a non-Jew who first sees the favor of God on Joseph's life, not one of his brothers. And that is fascinating. Is the favor of God on your life? And if so, 
Who was the first person to make use of it? Was it a church leader or was it an employer? You see, some Christians, they walk like lords in the world and cower like mice in the church because the church refuses to accept what the world sees, an opportunity to prosper. And you see sometimes the way these things work out in the world. I think of these superhead headmasters, okay? Um, they're praised to hire them. They've turned a school around. And then they move on to a new school. And then you meet them. And they're complete twazers. They're, they're really thick. They're dense. They're disorganized. And you think, how did they turn around the other school? Why, in that other school, there's a Joseph. Probably locked into a stock room or down a well or in a prison. But the Joseph is making things happen. The Joseph is organizing things. The Joseph is making things succeed. But it's the Potiphar that gets the praise. It's the Joseph that's ignored. This is the way of the world. Not only that, sometimes, not only do they take credit for what you've done, these Potiphar's, but very often they'll blame you when things go wrong, even if it's not your fault. You're the fall guy. And that's what happens to Joseph, because next comes rejection. He's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and imprisoned. Some people see the favor of God on you, and guess what? They want to degrade you. They want to drag you down to their level. Why? Because you make them feel uncomfortable. Because you make them feel inadequate. Because you make them feel guilty. Do non-Christian friends seek to cause you to sin? Drag you down to their level? Get you drunk? Off your drugs? Get you to swear? Encourage you to steal? It's okay. Everybody's doing it. Or you work in the public sector? Falsify statistics? How do you respond? Hang around long enough for it to happen? Or do you run away? Joseph runs away and the whole household turns against him. He's not one of them. He's a Hebrew, they're Egyptians. It's a different kingdom, different culture, different religion, different God. And if you want to know what it is like to be a Joseph, be a whistleblower in a corrupt firm. Stand up in Parliament as a Labour MP and speak against the Iraq war. Refuse to falsify figures in the NHS. And watch your carefully crafted career implode as everyone, even the ones who promoted you, turn against you. It's the way of the world. There's an old saying, isn't there? Victory has many fathers, but defeat is an orphan. Unless you can blame the Joseph. Unless they can pin the blame on you. You know, Potiphar should have had Joseph executed for what he did, but I suspect he's got his doubts about Mrs. Potiphar. So instead he sends him to prison, which is a very clever thing to do because as the chief leader of the Pharaoh's guard, he's also in charge of the prison. So I think he's thinking this, I can no longer use him in my house, but I can make use of him in the prison where he'll be accountable to the chief warden over who I have oversight. So he's going to make use of him in a different place. Clever chap. Genesis 39 verses 21 to 23 says this. But Yahweh was with Joseph. He showed his gracious favor to him, causing the prison warden to be pleased with him. So the prison warden entrusted into Joseph's care all the prisoners who were confined in prison. Whatever they did, Joseph was in charge of them. Prison warder did not have to worry about anything under Joseph's care because Yahweh was with him. So Joseph prospered in everything he did. Following that comes yet another revelation. He interprets the dream of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And that's quickly followed by rejection. The chief cupbearer says, I won't forget you. Once I'm up there, I'll, I'll tell people about you. But he doesn't. Chapter 40, verse 23 says this, But the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, 
he forgot him. I guess he forgot him on purpose because after all, who would he have reported this dream to? It would probably have been Potiphar. He'd probably have told Potiphar, do you know what, there's a guy down there who can see the future. And Potiphar would have said, do you know what, I think you should go back to jail, mate. Your job is just to offer wine to the pharaoh, not offer interpretations of dreams like this other chap is doing. Some people will see the favor of God on you, but you know what, they will not promote you or exalt you if it puts themselves at risk. And that all changes when the chief cupbearer sees he can make personal gain by name dropping. And sometimes, guess what? If somebody can make a gain, make a benefit from promoting you, then they will. And if they can't, then they won't. It doesn't relate at all to your status in the eyes of God. It relates to the way in which people react to the favor of God on your life. And following that comes revelation. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. And then acceptance again. He's made ruler of Egypt. He's now 30 years of age. He's been 13 years a slave, which would make a great title for a sequel to a movie. <laughs> and you look at his life, and it's, it's this roller coaster: Revelation, rejection, acceptance, rejection, revelation, rejection, revelation, acceptance. And it culminates in Pharaoh passing the only authoritative judgment on this man. Genesis chapter 41, verses 38 to 41. Pharaoh says this, And Pharaoh said to his servants, There is no one like this, in all of Egypt, someone in whom the Spirit of God lives. Since God has revealed all of this to you, Joseph, it is clear that there is no one so wise and discerning as you in all the land. So I'll put you in charge of my palace, and all of my people are to do whatever you command them to do. Only the throne will have greater authority than you. I've put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. The Spirit of God dwells in this man. The favor of God is the presence of the Spirit of God. And he is wise and he's discerning. But he's 30 years of age before anyone recognizes it. And it's a non-Christian, somebody who belongs to another religion, that does. And that could have been the end of the story. However, there's another old saying. Revenge is a dish best served cold. And it's not Joseph's revenge. It's God. Because God has a problem with Jacob. It's revealed in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 27, where God, speaking to Israel, says this, Your first father sinned. Jacob sinned. He stole the blessing from his father Isaac by making a meal out of goat and using his brother's clothes. And there's payback coming now to Jacob. Do you know there are consequences to our sins? Do you know, just because you've been forgiven of your sins does not mean that there are not consequences to the things that you've done. If you've committed criminal offenses, do you know what? God may forgive you, you still might have to go to prison. If you've treated your wife or your husband or your children like dirt, whether you were a Christian or not, do you know what? There are consequences to that that can't be avoided. If you abuse your body, guess what? There are consequences to that. How many prayers have to do with Christians asking to be excused the consequences of the sins they've committed? And I'm not sure God can actually answer those prayers. He can forgive you, but guess what? You eat all the pies, you treat your body like dirt, you'll end up with diabetes, and they might end up soaring your legs off. You can't avoid that. You're the one that chose to go down that road. Put your hand in the fire, guess what? Don't expect a miracle to avoid the pain and the searing flesh. So God is going to do something to Jacob. And he uses his family to do it. Just as Jacob had actually used his family to fool his father. So guess what? 
His 11 sons have deceived him using what? Goat's blood and Joseph's clothes. And then following that, after he's convinced that Joseph is dead, when the famine comes, 10 of the 11 brothers go to Egypt looking for food. And guess what? Joseph accuses them of being spies. He imprisons them. Then he releases them. Then he interrogates them. He demands that they send for Benjamin, who's been left behind. They don't want to do that because dear old Jacob, he doesn't want to let go of his youngest son. He's already lost, so he thinks, the other son that was beloved of his wife, Rachel. But in the end, he has to let go of Benjamin. So now it looks like he's lost both of them. And then when Benjamin comes, what does Joseph do? He, he plants a gold cup on him so he can be arrested. And it's only when he threatens to kill Benjamin that finally Judah, Judah the one who actually sold Joseph into slavery in the first place, Judah who is a nasty piece of work, who wanted his daughter-in-law Tamar burned to death when he found out that she was pregnant and then relented when he realized that he was the dad. Judah, through whom comes Christ via Tamar. It's only when Judas offers his own life as a replacement for Benjamin that at last Joseph breaks down. And you can tell this is not the will of Joseph, this is the will of God, because twice already Joseph has broken down in tears in private. And now at this point, he breaks down uncontrollably. He's crying so much they can hear him in Pharaoh's house. And it's then he reveals all, and then you get the heart of the man coming out. Chapter 45, verse 3, he says this, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And then there's reconciliation. And they come to Egypt, and this is the beginning of the history of Israel. They're in Egypt eventually as slaves, but guess what? Out of Israel will come a redeemer, and from that redeemer will come the new nation of Israel. And from Israel will then come the Messiah who will redeem the entire human race. It's an extraordinary story. It really is. But how does it apply to you? Is the favor of God on your life? Is the favor of God on my life? I've heard it said that because we're Christians, the favor of God is automatically on our life. But do you know what? Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you are one. Two and a half billion people on this planet claim to be Christians. How many actually are? I don't know. The definition of who and who is not a Christian, well, it's the words of Jesus. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. It's all about discipline. It's all about obedience. It's not about just saying you're something. It's about doing and being someone. So, not necessarily. And in the example we've got, you know, the favor of God is not on 11 brothers, but it is on one. So just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you necessarily have the favor of God. And don't think you've got it because of outcomes, okay? I mean, it's easy to look at Joseph and say, wow, he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. Therefore, the favor of God was on him. He had to become the prime minister of Egypt to redeem his family from the forthcoming famine. The favor of God was also on Jesus. He ended up on a cross in order to redeem the world. The favor of God was on Peter. He ended up being crucified upside down. The favor of God was also on Paul. He ended up in be being beheaded. Jesus had to die to save the world. Paul and Peter had to die in that way so that the Gentiles in Europe would become Christian. You can't look down the wrong end of the telescope and think that because of outcomes, the favor of God is or is not on your life. Okay? The outcomes depend on the plan and purpose of God. You might end up martyred, not a terribly great outcome, and yet that's the one that might show the favor of God is on you. So there's five things I just want to look at for you to find out and for me to find out whether the favor of God is on our life. First of all, other people see it first. Have you been used? 
Have you been abused? Have you been rejected? Hey, maybe the favor of God is on your life. Because that's actually been the experience of Joseph. They see the gift on him and they use him. And then when things go wrong, they abuse him. And guess what? When they don't like him, they reject him. Of course, it might be that you've been used and abused and rejected because, well, there are other things going on. You might have been used in your life because you're gullible. Or you might have been abused in your life because you're vulnerable. Or you might have been rejected in your life because you're an idiot. But if you're a gullible, vulnerable idiot and those things have happened to you, maybe, maybe it's because the favor of God is on your life. You never know. Secondly, the favor of God is manifest in serving. If you don't serve, you don't have the favor of God. And that's the end of the story. It's all about serving. Serving people other than yourself and being a blessing to them. The favor of God really is a conduit. It is a means whereby people can be blessed by God through you. Look this morning. We're remembering the one and a half million British Commonwealth soldiers who died. About six million were injured in the two world wars. About 18 million effectively lost their youth because they served in the armed forces. Was the favor of God on them? When you're killed at the age of 17 on the first day of the psalm, was the favor of God on you? In terms of outcomes, no. But actually, they were a conduit of the favor of God upon us. So yes, the favor of God was on them. They served, literally. They served in the armed forces. And don't tell me that the Kaiser and Adolf Hitler should have been allowed to dominate Europe. In their own day, they were recognized quite rightly as being antichrists. Thirdly, the favor of God means that you never give up. In every circumstance, you just continue to serve. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the favor of God on your life and he never gives up. You will persevere, you will overcome, you will endure. It doesn't matter what happens. You just hang in there. It's as simple as that. There is no alternative. When Jesus upset so many of his followers by telling them that they had to eat his body and drink his blood in order to become uh, servants of God, everybody left him except his disciples. And he said to them, are you going to go as well? And they said, where could we go to? We've given up everything to follow you. There are plenty of times when I've wanted to walk out of this faith. I've got nowhere else to go. It's as simple as that. I know the truth. I know my Lord lives. I know my Redeemer lives. And therefore, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter. He is the one. It's all about him. So you never give up. And if you do give up, what do you do then? You get back up, don't you? Because there's nowhere else to go. Simple as that. Fourthly, the favor of God means that you efface yourself. This is a commentary by Hugh White on chapter 40, verse 8 of Genesis. This is what he says. Joseph assumes a role that will define his identity for the remainder of the narrative by claiming access to divine knowledge while also effacing himself before God. So that God, rather than himself, appears to be the source of the interpretation. Do you talk about yourself all the time? About your role in the church? About your gifts? About your life? About your family? About your work? About your looks? Favor of God is not on your life. It's as simple as that. You and I are not that interesting. You and I are not that important. It really is all about Jesus. 
Jesus in me. He's the one who's working through us, okay? And do you know what? If you meet somebody who's really, really, really interesting, the other people you know, guess what? They don't seem quite as good afterwards. You know, if George Clooney moved in next door to you, you wouldn't be talking about your other neighbor on the other side, okay? Once you've met with Jesus Christ, he becomes the topic of your conversation, seriously. And in the end, you just efface yourself, not because you've got some kind of false humility. No, no, you're just focusing on the thing that excites you and that you love, okay? Which is not going to be yourself. And then finally, the favor of God is the knowledge of God. Christians who don't understand why there's evil in the world, why bad things happen, why some people die and others live, do not have the favor of God on their lives. Joseph gets it. He reveals it so clearly in chapter 45, verse 5. When he says to his brothers, in order to preserve life, God sent me ahead of you. He knows he was not sold into slavery. He was sent by God. He discerns what is really going on. He sees through the ambitions and the fears and the regrets and the hatred of other people. And he sees the hand of God. And that's what the Spirit of God brings to you. That sense of discernment. You see what's really happening. There's that beautiful scripture in Romans, isn't it? Chapter 8, verse 28. We know all things work to God for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. He knows in the well and in the prison and in Pharaoh's palace, okay, that it is the will of God at work in his life. God does not play dice. There's no such thing as chance, okay? And the person upon whom the favor of God is sees, sees the hand of God in all these things. Just to finish... Look back on your life. What have you left behind you? I don't think this works if you're under 30. To be honest, you've been around, you haven't been around long enough to have a reputation. If you're 30 and over, though, I think it applies. Look back on your life. What is the trail you've left? Is it a trail of tears or a tra- trail of blessing? Which is it? With Joseph, it's a trail of blessing all the way through. He is the one who has touched people's lives in a positive way. The extraordinary thing is, when I look back on my life, I see a mixture of things. I see on the one hand, when I worked in probation, I left a trail of blessing. No question about it. People who would otherwise have died didn't die. And when I was 17, I was a Joseph. I know it because I blessed people. And that's when things went wrong. Because when my brothers came to put me in a well... I broke their legs and walked off into the desert. I did not do what God wanted me to do. And after that, there's a trail of tears. So in my life, there's a mixed blessing. When I look at my wife or my daughter, I just see a trail of blessing. You know, they've worked as teachers. They've been used as teachers. They've been abused as teachers on the basis that, guess what? They have not been given the adequate resources to do their job. When things go wrong in the school, they get the blame, even though it's not their fault. I mean, it's been their history, and the favor of God is on their lives. For myself, a mixed bag. The sad thing is, some Christians, when they look behind themselves, do you know what? There's nothing. They're not bad people. They haven't left a trail of tears, but they haven't left a trail of blessing. Why? Because they've kept themselves to themselves. They've kept the salt in the jar. They've kept the light under the table. If they've blessed anyone, they've just blessed themselves. And as a result, they don't have a reputation. In fact, their lives are like writing in water. There's no evidence that they've ever been. You don't want that to be your reputation, okay? 
And the important thing to understand about the favor of God, it is not God that makes the choice. You make the choice. God could not put the favor of God on those 11 other brothers. Why? Because they were filled with things that offended the Holy Spirit. The favor of God is meant for every single one of us. And we are the ones who decide whether the favor of God will be manifest or not by the way we choose to live our lives. And I tell you this now, with that madman in the White House, we need all the Josephs we can get. <laughs> this message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 596000.